0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: It's been an embarrassing week for the Johnson government as Education Secretary Gavin Williamson was forced into a U-turn on exam results for millions of students. I'd like to start
2: off by emphasizing my apologies to those students that have been affected and those students have been impacted by not getting the right grade.
0: Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. I'm back from a little holiday with many thanks to George Parker for stepping in. In this episode, I'll be discussing Gavin Williamson's political future and whether Boris Johnson might change his management style as Prime Minister with our political correspondent, Laura Hughes, and special guest, Paul Goodman, former Tory MP who edits the Conservative Home website, The Bible of the Tory Grassroots. And later, I'll be checking in on everyone's favourite topic, Brexit and why the talks are stuck in stalemate or perhaps even going a little backwards with our Brussels Bureau Chief Sam Fleming and Public Policy Editor Pete Foster. So Laura, welcome back and Paul, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi. Now, before all that, there's one question in the back of everyone's mind, which is how do we stop Parliament crumbling or burning down? It's got this multi-billion pound refurbishment that's been going on for years as far as I can remember. Now, there was a bit of talk around that when the Renault happens, the House of Lords could move to York. That's been quashed this week. I thought it was quite a nice idea. Laura, were you upset to think that you wouldn't be spending a lot of time on the East Coast mainland going up to the House of Lords in York? (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I went to university in New York, so I quite liked the idea of heading back there, but it did always feel a little bit pie in the sky. I, I can never actually quite see that happening. So uh, a little bit disappointed that we're not moving, but yeah, I wouldn't have minded at all.
0: Now, Paul, I think obviously you spent a lot of time in Parliament over the years. Do you think that some of it should be moved outside of Westminster? This is something people in Downing Street are very keen on as part of the levelling
2: up agenda. Well, I have to say, as another former York graduate, I could think of nothing nicer than relocating from London to York to do my job, with Parliament being relocated to this big, empty patch on one side of York Station. But it's not going to happen, and there's a bit of history to what happens next. We were asked on Conservative Home by friends of Dominic Cummings to do a little poll of readers to ask where they would send Parliament to in the interim if it's moved. And one of the specifications was somewhere near a good university. So if it's not to be York, I would send MPs and peers to Coventry near Warwick University. It's relatively near to London. If you're going to move Parliament for a bit up into the Midlands, Coventry would seem to me to do as well as anywhere else. Imagine Dominic Cummings wanting to send MPs to Coventry,
0: something you could imagine he'd be very happy with. I feel as the only non-York graduate here, I must put in a little call for my old university town of Durham. But anyway, nothing is moving in Westminster for now, not least Gavin Williamson. So let's dive into our main story and the political repercussions of the exam fiasco. No U-turn. That was the government's mantra when this year's A-level results were released an algorithm meant to standardise the grades ended up marking down people from disadvantaged backgrounds. Inevitably, perhaps after huge public anger, the Education Secretary changed his mind and went with teacher-approved grades instead. Now, for most prime ministers, that would be the end of Gavin Williamson's time at the Department for Education. But for Boris Johnson, loyalty is the prime currency, so he has stayed in post for now. But that hasn't quite quelled the anger of senior Tories, including the new leader of the Scottish Conservatives, Douglas Ross, who has asked if Williamson should step
2: down. It's a decision for the Prime Minister if he continues to have the trust uh, of the Prime Minister. I'm not here to say in your uh, report that I uh, think Gavin Williamson has done a great job and he should continue. I think he has to reflect on what happened to so many pupils uh, in England, students who were concerned for four days because we had the exact same up here in Scotland for a week.
0: Laura, let's begin with the exams U-turn this week. Now, last weekend, Gavin Williamson said there will be no change. We're going to stick with the course with this algorithm run by Ofqual. That's the quango that oversees exams results. And then about 48 hours later, there was a U-turn. What forced them into that change?
1: Well, clearly they thought they could stand their ground. And actually, it felt last week, just chatting to MPs, that there wasn't a huge amount of anger out there towards Gavin Williamson. But what happened is the media went full in and did their job and there were all these really horrific stories emerging of pupils who were set to go and study medicine at top universities who'd never got less than an A star, saying they'd been given three B's or three C's based on this algorithm which used teaching rankings and assessment and was largely considered to be unfair By a lot of people, because even if you were exceptional, if your school historically hadn't produced really great grades, you saw your marks move down and the government went into a bit of a crisis mode. It's sort of still extraordinary to me that it took that long because we saw what had happened in Scotland, something quite similar. And having felt that maybe it wasn't as bad, it really emerged that it was. And I think the public pressure was huge. The pressure from education experts, universities, that grew. But then the thing that really pushed it, I think, was over the weekend when I was working, there was a real sea change in the mood. And suddenly Tory MPs were willing themselves to stick their heads above the parapet. They were going public. They were threatening to go on the warpath. And at that point, it just became unsustainable for them to continue to hold the line.
0: Now, Paul, the question here is how much of this was public pressure and how much of this was the prime It's my understanding there was a call on Monday with Gavin Williamson and Boris Johnson and the PM sort of essentially said, look, this has to happen. And we had the U-turn a couple of hours later. And we know from storms over Dominic Cummings' travel to Barnard Castle and Robert Jenrick's rouse about housing developments that this government doesn't like to give in to media pressure and public pressure. So did they give in this time or was it just the Prime Minister's internal
2: decision, do you think? I think following on from what Lauren said a moment ago, a crucial event in all this was the off-qual U-term, by which they issued guidelines on the Sunday, I think, for how the appeal system would work and withdrew them on the same day. Now, once that happens, divided Tory opinion, which I found too about what to do, began to coalesce. A mood began to grow of, we can understand the policy problems. We understand all the difficulties in getting this right. The one thing that we cannot stomach on the back benches is incompetence. And at that point, I think it became very apparent that nothing was really working out in a clear way for the government on the issue. So I thought it was probably about that time that Boris Johnson began to get ready to make the concession. And if he hadn't, newspapers were keeping a list, this is always a fatal development when it happens, of Tory rebels And by the time the concession came, 28 or so were on the record. So if he hadn't made the concession, that number would have grown and grown and grown, and he would have had a very
0: big problem. I think it's quite interesting when you look at that list of Tory MPs, Laura, it was growing quite a steady rate. and It did remind me of the whole barnard Castle affair, but that reached 60 Tory MPs and Mr Cummings didn't apologise and didn't resign over that. But in this instance, there was a very clear policy U-turn there. Do you think Gavin Williamson was at all embarrassed by this? Do you think he offered his resignation? If
1: you heard him out on the airwaves defending himself, he didn't appear to be too remorseful, but he did apologize. But then there's been this row as to who's really to blame. And actually, if you talk to the people around him, the point that they keep making is, well, look, the beginning of the year in March, everybody agreed we weren't going to be able to do these exams, so we were going to have to find some sort of standardization process. And every single devolved nation did this. The exam boards were in agreement. And so there's a real deflection of responsibility there. It's not just Gavin Williamson's fault. Look, everybody did it. Everyone was forced to U-turn. It's been a mess across the UK. The difference, of course, though, is that we saw other countries U-turning way before we did. We saw the exam results coming out last week, and yet no policy was changed at all. The point that Paul makes is really right A lot of MPs did sympathize with Gavin Williamson, and he went out and defended something that he actually believed, and so did Nick Gibb, the education minister, which was that you needed a standardization process, or you would see rampant grade inflation. This was an impossible situation that they had to deal with. But it was the fact that we saw this problem coming. They didn't sort it out. You then had Ofqual pulling their guidance, and it just looked absolutely appalling,
0: Now, Paul, on this, there's obviously been a question about Boris Johnson's management style, because I think as I've written about and you've written about too, he very much sees himself as the chairman of this government, as opposed to the chief executive. He likes to have lots of smart people around him. We've mentioned Mr. Cummings, Munira Mirza, who runs the Downing Street Policy Unit, is another. Rishi Sunak, Michael Gove. He likes to have those people he trusts and let them get on with the job here. And it feels like Gavin Williamson was one of those people. There is a question, I suppose, is the Prime Minister happy with how this has gone? Is there any sense that he might say, you know what, I need to get a bit more involved. And I'm sick of the drama that we've had, because really, you know, a lot of it's been due to coronavirus. But ever since he won that election last December, the drama has not really stopped.
2: I come at this from the background of having worked with Boris Johnson, both when he was a journalist and when he was an MP. When he was a journalist, I handled his copy at the Daily Telegraph. And When he was an MP, he was my neighbour. I was MP for Wickham for 10 years, he was MP for Henley. What strikes me about the way he handles government is that it's completely consistent with the record I remember. As a journalist, he was a great entertainer. He wrote a very entertaining column for the Daily Telegraph. From that background, I think he doesn't, in a certain sense, take journalism too seriously. And this instinct of his is buttressed by Dominic Cummings' feeling that basically the media has got too powerful over the years and now really doesn't have the listenership or the readership to match what he sees as its pretensions. As an MP, Boris Johnson was a loner. He was much happier as mayor of London, building his team around him, where, as you point out, he did delegate. But he was never really one of the lads. He was off on his own, this former editor of The Spectator who'd arrived and who had a high public profile so you've got someone who doesn't take the media too seriously and also he's never really been one of the boys and girls from that you get this rather detached style of leading the country and i don't think for a moment that's basically going to change
0: now of course laura if the style doesn't change, the government might change. And there's been more talk around this week about a reshuffle. And my reading of the Tory ruins is that there's kind of two options here. One is a mini reshuffle this September, and that's to deal with a very straightforward problem, which is Anne-Marie Trevelyan, and she's the Secretary of State for International Development. And as we know, DFID is closing down the next few weeks. And it's my understanding that the prime minister has made clear she will stay in the cabinet as a prominent Brexiter and a prominent ally of Mr. Johnson. So there's talk of finding a new birth for her. And a lot of the chatter is that she might go to the Ministry of Defence. But then there's other people who are saying, in fact, the reshuffle might happen post-Brexit once there's a deal, once we've got through that early next year. There's a feeling, I think, in number 10 that they don't want to move too quickly. But there again, they might be forced into a reshuffle if there's more chaos with Mr. Williamson when schools reopen or don't reopen in the next couple of weeks.
1: Yes, I mean, this idea has been around the last couple of days. Speculations as to whether or not Gavin Williamson was going to have to go. And the feeling is very much, let's see if he can get schools back in September. If he can pull that off, he lasts a little bit longer. If he can't, he might have to go quite quickly. But yes, there would be some sort of mini reshuffle. What I think the exams U-turn and the chaos of the last few weeks has brought up is really some quite deep dissatisfaction with the way that Number 10 is operating. There are a lot of backbench MPs who aren't very vocal, don't make a fuss, who privately are worried that there are cabinet ministers who have been put in those roles as a reward for their loyalty and not for their actual competence. So when you have an issue, as we have just had with the A-levels, they don't want someone in there who the Prime Minister can trust, who he has a good relationship with, who's a kind of strategic mover and political operator. They want someone who's across the detail and who isn't going to embarrass the government. They don't like the fact that over the summer, there have been a lot of really embarrassing stories. There's been just U-turn after U-turn there are always a very small number of MPs who talk about these things. But I picked up that there was even discussion of potentially a leadership challenge. You know, there are actual MPs sitting there thinking Boris Johnson is not leading us in the way that he should be.
0: Yes. Now, Paul, what do you reckon about the potential for changes in the cabinet here? Because on Conhome this week, you are editorial saying... That Gavin Williamson should move, although you didn't expect him to. What do you think about a reshuffle and what kind of changes might result from that?
2: It's certainly true you've got to think your way into it from the position of Gavin Williamson. I'm not a great one for calling for the heads of ministers, but it seems to me that he's in an impossible position. First, he's got to try to get schools back, beginning pretty much next week, and his credibility is shot. Second, he's got to deal with the consequences of more students getting into sixth forms and colleges than were expected. And then next, he's got to deal with the consequences of getting more students into universities than were expected. Finally, he's got to carry out this rebalancing of higher and further education that the government's promised, and he's simply in no position to do it. So, I don't see how the Prime Minister could have a, a shuffle in a few weeks and leave Williamson in place trying to grapple with all this maybe he will but it's very high stakes i think what he wants to do as as laura says is have a sort of proper big shuffle in january i mean what he could do in the interim is simply put anne-marie trevelyan back on the back benches with a cast iron promise she'll come in in january or he could do something that Dominic Raab and the Foreign Office apparently don't want to do, which is keep her in the cabinet for a few months wearing her international development hat. Anyway, in sum, I think carrying out a mini shuffle without moving Gavin Williamson is going to be very difficult and it's very
0: difficult in any event. And finally, Paul, I have to ask you about that question Laura just mentioned there. Do you get any sense at all, there's any serious discontent in the Tory grassroots about Boris Johnson's position? It seems crazy to be thinking about a leadership challenge, less than a year since he won that stonking 80-seat majority. But is there any discontent about how the PM is leading the party and the government?
2: Leadership challenges are meat and drink to Conservative home. From a professional point of view, we like nothing better than covering them, and running polls, and so on. I have to say that, like Laura, I think we are a very long way off that. But just looking ahead to the next few years, in the background of the extraordinary last five years, you know, David Cameron's come and gone, UKIP have come and gone, Brexit Party's come and gone, Jeremy Corbyn's come and gone, the Liberal Democrats have disappeared, came back, have disappeared again. I don't quite think you can be sure, and there are two forces conflicting here. One is the irresistible force of Boris Johnson, this guy who's never lost an election and has got this natural reach-through to a lot of the public. The other is the immovable object of a parliamentary party who fundamentally won't indefinitely put up with being ignored. How that works out, I simply
0: don't know. Well, I have to say as well, we like covering leadership challenges. They're great fun, but I don't think there's one coming in the immediate future. Lauren Paul, thank you very much. Brexit hasn't been in the headlines for a while, but that doesn't mean the issue has disappeared. The UK is still deep in negotiations to strike some sort of trade deal with the EU. Otherwise, it risks spilling out of the block on suboptimal trading terms at the end of 2020. After a personal intervention from the Prime Minister in July, there was hope that progress could be made over the summer. But on Friday, the EU's chief negotiator, Michel Barnier, said the whole process was in stalemate. Too often this week, it felt as if we were going backwards more than forwards. Given the short time left, what I said in London in July remains true. Today, at this stage, An agreement between UK and the European Union seems unlikely. I simply do not understand why we are wasting valuable time. Sam Fleming, listening to Michel Barnier there, he's clearly not happy with where the talks were. And he's often quite terse in these press conferences, but I thought he was um, quite open about his frustration there. Can you just give us a quick
3: refresh on what's going on? That's right. He was open with his frustration. The round of talks that the EU and the UK held the end of July was inconclusive. There was a feeling that both sides really needed to energise this process. And so there was some, I would say, limited hope that this round in August, the normally dead period of August, could offer some breakthroughs. It really hasn't. And the problem is now that we're facing a very, very narrow time window to do an incredibly complex trade deal between two important economic players. Really, this needs to be wrapped up at the very latest by the uh, end of October in order to get it all ratified and, and legally watertight and through by the end of the post-Brexit transition period, which ends at the end of the year. So this round of trade talks, highly inconclusive and great deal of frustration, particularly being expressed by Michel Barney, which you just heard there. Well, while he was a bit downbeat, Boris Johnson, of course, is still upbeat.
0: And he said in Northern Ireland recently that he's keen for a deal, but only on the terms that he finds acceptable.
3: I've got no doubt that there's a, you know, there's a very, very good uh, case for all our friends and partners around the EU to do what I think we all want to do, which is zero tariff, zero quota. Uh, deal. It's it's there to be done. Uh, Let's just uh, get on and do it. I know that our friends in in Dublin very much share that perspective.
0: Well, Peter Foster, listening to the Prime Minister, he makes it sound all very straightforward and easy, just a straightforward zero-tariff, zero-quota deal. Why is he
4: wrong? Why isn't the deal just being done? Because if you want zero-tariff, zero-quota access to the single market, as the Europeans have been saying since March 2017, when they published the first mandate, you are going to need to agree some kind of what they call a level playing field, some kind of mutual guarantee that the UK is not going to be free to undercut. And the big question is on state aid, on the mechanisms by which we subsidise business. And the UK still hasn't advanced a position on that. Mr Barnier says, I can't understand why we're wasting time. He actually knows full well why we're wasting time. We're wasting time because the British cabinet hasn't reached an agreed position on state aid, so David Frost can't advance the UK position. I think there are landing zones on state aid, but we're not even at the point where we're exploring them. Now, of course, you mentioned David Frost
0: there. He's Boris Johnson's chief negotiator. And unlike Theresa May's negotiator, uh, Ollie Robbins, David Frost is a true Brexit believer, and he's about to become the national security advisor for Boris Johnson, Sam. And when that happens, it means essentially there's a very firm window to get this deal done. You mentioned October is the real deadline. How much of this is theatrics? You know, as Peter was just saying, there are some clear landing zones we can sort of see. But when does that begin? to emerge?
3: Well, I really wouldn't call it theatrics at all. I mean, they're trying to do a a trade agreement in an extraordinarily compressed period of time, which covers a very, very deep and complex economic relationship. We're talking about really a couple of months left on the clock now. There's a summit scheduled in Brussels for mid-October, where they're hoping to be able to sign off on this that really doesn't give us very much time. The next round starts in early September and officials are really hoping that that's the moment where they'll be able to see important progress on the key areas where things appear to be stalled. The key vital interests in terms of the, from the perspective of the European Union, Fisheries, and as Peter said, uh, state aid. These are absolute basic requirements as far as the EU is concerned, and they're not seeing signs from the UK that they're ready to move there. There was during the week an offer of a presentation of a consolidated text of the draft FTA in terms of the understanding to date by. The UK aimed, I believe, at trying to inject a bit of life into the process, but this didn't contain any concessions or movement by the UK in the areas where the EU wants to see movement. And so it was really of no particular significance in the grand scheme of these negotiations. It just seemed to underscore just how stalled things are. I think
4: that's right. You know, if you believe that Boris Johnson is essentially running this into the end zone and is going to do a repeat of what he did last October and accept a deal at the last minute, he's just trying to push the EU into concessions, then it's all theatrics. But if the UK is really going to stand its ground and say we don't want any deal which encumbers us in any way, then even if you accept the EU position that you no longer have to have the jurisdiction of the ECJ on state aid, it is really difficult to reach a position if we're not prepared to set out at least a shared philosophy on state aid and we think we can continue just to pare back the deal, as Mr Barnier said, make the deal weaker and weaker so that in the end the EU accepts no LPF at all, then it's not theatrics. Then we are, frankly, talking across each other, and come September, October, it will be very, very difficult to reach an agreement. Now, Peter, you mentioned level playing field there and stated, which
0: are all about competition. I guess you've got these two competing things, which is in Downing Street, they want to have full freedom to run the country as they see it after leaving the EU. But the other issue, of course, which has been mentioned a lot, is fishing, which has abnormal significance in the Brexit process, partly emotional. And I think the EU and the UK know
4: that. Where are we at on fishing? Pretty much nowhere. You know, the UK has tried to advance this idea of zonal attachment. It says that it's leaving the common fisheries policy, it's taking back control of its international coastal waters, and it wants to use zonal attachment, which is a fancy word of saying of we'll base the quotas on where the fish are and have an annual quota negotiation. And the EU is pretty much stuck in the position of saying we want status quo access, even though in private, Barnier has told the member states they're going to have to make concessions. So we have a proper standoff. I think the thing about fish is It represents 0.1% of the UK economy, 1% of the EU economy. And even though, as you say, Seb, it's an incredibly emotive issue, I think if you sort out the other issues, state aid, etc., they'll find a way essentially to kind of kick the can on fish, to reach enough of a deal that we can get into the post-transition phase and continue negotiating. Well,
0: I was going to ask you, Sam, about the politics of this from the EU side, because in the UK, obviously Boris Johnson won last year's general election, has an 80-seat majority, and he feels that I think he has a mandate for no deal, and I'm sure he wouldn't have many problems from Conservative MPs to get that through Parliament. From the EU's perspective, less has politically changed from their view, but I guess the big thing, of course, is coronavirus. You know, given where we're at now, would you say they're more or less likely to want to make the concessions to do a deal? First
3: thing to point out is that the European Union capitals have not been focused on Brexit in recent months at all. They've been quite happy to leave things to Barnier and his team. They haven't seen signs of progress, nor have they necessarily expected progress in the early part of the year. That was always the belief that the first half of the year will be pretty much a write-off, and that's been what's happened. Their key focus has been on the recovery fund and the economic reconstruction effort post-COVID. Their attention is clearly now going to swing now that that recovery fund has been agreed in a European summit this summer they're going to switch to Brexit. Now, In terms of the political prioritisation, their tolerance for the pain of a no deal, that very much depends from country to country. Clearly, a country like Ireland or Belgium or Netherlands would have a greater fervent desire to avoid that if at all possible. But this, uh, in the end, has to be a compromise for the European Union level in total. And there's no doubt that what Mr Barnier says in terms of the key priorities that he's talking about, level playing field, the fisheries elements and others, associated with that, they aren't going to compromise in the way that some in the UK appear to think they will. And in the UK, Peter, what does a no deal look and feel like? You've done some excellent
0: reporting on all the stuff businesses are having to do to get ready for the prospect of even without a deal. And there's an argument from some that I've heard in Westminster saying that, well, the deal we're now looking for from the EU is so thin, it actually wouldn't make that much amount of difference anyway. There's going to be a lot of disruption for businesses. Is that true? And what do you think the
4: pain would look like if there isn't a deal? So it's definitely true that the deal is very thin and therefore businesses are going to have to adjust anyway. They're still going to be doing export health declarations. They're still going to be doing customs forms, even if it's a zero-tariff, zero-quota deal. We haven't looked for waivers on safety and security declarations, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that underestimates the political impact of no deal. I hear some quite sort of lazy thinking about, well, no one will notice a no deal because the COVID crisis will sort of make it all pale into comparison. I think that's very misguided. And my, one of my worries, actually, is that the government a bit like the A-levels fiasco, where it just didn't heed warnings because it just thought, well, it won't be that bad, will it really? Might actually kind of believe its own propaganda. And no deal will be really messy. You know, we've spent 40 plus years evolving all of the frictionlessness of the single market. And the guillotine would come down very sharply on the 1st of January. And when you talk to the haulage industry, the freight forwarding industry, the chemicals, pharmaceuticals, autos, sectors, the ones that will be really impacted... You hear genuine concerns that government isn't getting it and that they're not being listened to. There's never been, I don't think, a negotiation of this size, Sebastian, where industry has been so poorly consulted. The government is in this negotiating Giving away more and more on rules of origin, on mutual recognition, professional qualifications, etc., in order to try and get the deal. Normally, you would expect the impacted industries to be in the back room, constantly consulted. If we do this, what does it do? If we do that, what do we do? There's none of that. They're just ploughing on, and I think the danger is that they underestimate just quite how messy No Deal would be. It wouldn't be the end of the absolute end of the world, but on top of COVID, on top of the unemployment, it would be significantly messy. I think.
0: And finally, for each of you, I want to know your probabilities very quickly. Is there going to be a deal? Sam?
4: I suspect still that there
3: will be a deal in the end for the reasons that Peter is outlining there, that the pain actually is significant in the context of COVID for the UK. Greater pain for the UK, given the size, its relative size of its export to the EU than vice versa. But still, no deal will be painful for both sides and they will do everything
4: they can to avoid it. And Peter, briefly? I'm 60-40 on a deal still, but my confidence is starting to waver. I mentioned one more word that makes me think there'll be a deal, Scotland. Uh, No deal would be really, really messy for the devolution situation with Scottish elections coming up in May next year.
0: Absolutely. And I'm sorry, you stole what I was going to say. I was going to say 60-40. It still feels more likely than not, but there's still time for that to flip around. Sam and Peter, thank you very much for joining. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes when they're released. And if you want some more listening, then do check out my latest interview Special with Ed Davey. I spoke to the former cabinet minister and liberal Democrat leadership contender to ask, what is the point of his party? His thoughts on liberal radicalism, UBI, climate change, and the Tories are worth your time. You can find the episode in the usual podcast feed. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder, Josh de Mer, and Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.
2: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance.